Section 33 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Shipp. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Chapter 8A, History as Cause, Columbia and Challenger, Part 1. The Board began its investigation with two central questions about NASA decisions. Why did NASA continue to fly with known foam debris problems in the years preceding the Columbia launch? And why did NASA managers conclude that the foam debris strike 81.9 seconds into Columbia's flight was not a threat to the safety of the mission, despite the concerns of their engineers? 8.1. Echoes of Challenger as the investigation progressed, board member Dr. Sally Ride, who also served on the Rogers Commission, observed that there were echoes of Challenger in Columbia. Ironically, the Rogers Commission investigation into Challenger started with two remarkably similar central questions. Why did NASA continue to fly with known O-ring erosion problems in the years before the Challenger launch? and why on the eve of the challenger launch did nasa managers decide that launching the mission in such cold temperatures was an acceptable risk despite the concerns of their engineers the echoes did not stop there the foam debris hit was not the single cause of the Columbia accident, just as the failure of the joint seal that permitted o-ring erosion was not the single cause of challenger both Columbia and Challenger were lost also because of the failure of NASA's organizational system. Part 2 of this report cites failures of the three parts of NASA's organizational system. This chapter shows how previous political, budgetary and policy decisions by leaders at the White House, Congress and NASA, Chapter 5, impacted the Space Shuttle's program structure, culture and safety system, Chapter 7, and how these in turn resulted in flawed decision-making, Chapter 6, for both accidents. The explanation is about system effects, how actions taken in one layer of NASA's organisational system impact other layers. History is not just a backdrop or a scene-setter. History is cause. History set the Columbia and Challenger accidents in motion. Although part two is separated into chapters and sections to make clear what happened in the political environment, the organization and managers and engineers' decision-making, the three worked together. Each is a critical link in the causal chain. This chapter shows that both accidents were failures of foresight in which history played a prominent role. First, the history of engineering decisions on foam and o-ring incidents had identical trajectories that normalised these anomalies so that flying with these flaws became routine and acceptable. Second, NASA history had an effect. In response to White House and Congressional mandates, NASA leaders took actions that created systemic organisational flaws at the time of Challenger that were also present for Columbia. 
The final section compares the two critical decision sequences immediately before the loss of both orbiters, the pre-launch teleconference for Challenger and the post-launch foam strike discussions for Columbia. It shows history again at work, how past definitions of risk combined with systemic problems in the NASA organization caused both accidents. Connecting the parts of NASA's organizational system and drawing the parallels with Challenger demonstrate three things. First, despite all the post-Challenger changes at NASA and the agency's notable achievements since, the causes of the institutional failure responsible for Challenger have not been fixed. Second, the board strongly believes that if these persistent systemic flaws are not resolved, the scene is set for another accident. Therefore, the recommendations for change are not only for fixing the shuttle's technical system, but also for fixing each part of the organizational system that produced Columbia's failure. Third, the board's focus on the context in which decision-making occurred does not mean that individuals are not responsible and accountable. To the contrary, individuals always must assume responsibility for their actions. What it does mean is that NASA's problems cannot be solved simply by retirements, resignations or transferring personnel. The constraints under which the agency has operated throughout the shuttle program have contributed to both shuttle accidents. Although NASA leaders have played an important role, these constraints were not entirely of NASA's own making. The White House and Congress must recognize the role of their decisions in this accident and take responsibility for safety in the future. 8.2. Failures of Foresight two decision histories and the normalization of deviance. Foam loss may have occurred on all missions, and left bipod ramp foam loss occurred on 10% of the flights for which visible evidence exists. The board had a hard time understanding how, after the bitter lessons of Challenger, NASA could have failed to identify a similar trend. Rather than view the foam decision only in hindsight, the board tried to see the foam incidents as NASA engineers and managers saw them as they made their decisions. This section gives an insider perspective, how NASA defined risk and how those definitions changed over time for both foam debris hits and O-ring erosion. In both cases, engineers and managers conducting risk assessments continually normalized the technical deviations they found. In all official engineering analyses and launch recommendations prior to the accidents, evidence that the design was not performing as expected was reinterpreted as acceptable and non-deviant, which diminished perceptions of risk throughout the agency. The initial shuttle design predicted neither foam debris problems nor poor sealing action of the solid rocket booster joints. To experience either on a mission was a violation of design specifications. These anomalies were signals of potential danger, not something to be tolerated. But in both cases, after the first incident, the engineering analysis concluded that the design could tolerate the damage. These engineers decided to implement a temporary fix and or accept the risk and fly. For both O-rings and foam, that first decision was a turning point. It established a precedent for accepting rather than eliminating these technical deviations. As a result of this new classification, subsequent incidents of O-ring erosion or foam debris strikes were not defined as signals of danger, but as evidence that the design was now acting as predicted. 
engineers and managers incorporated worsening anomalies into the engineering experience base which functioned as an elastic waistband expanding to hold larger deviations from the original design anomalies that did not lead to catastrophic failure were treated as a source of valid engineering data that justified further flights these anomalies were translated into a safety margin that was extremely influential allowing engineers and managers to add incrementally to the amount and seriousness of damage that was acceptable both o-ring erosion and foam debris events were repeatedly addressed in nasa's flight readiness reviews but never fully resolved in both cases the engineering analysis was incomplete and, and inadequate engineers understood what was happening but they never understood why nasa continued to implement a series of small corrective actions living with the problems until it was too late nasa documents show how official classifications of risk were downgraded over time program managers designated both the foam problems and o-ring erosion as acceptable risks in flight readiness reviews nasa managers also assigned each bipod foam event in-flight anomaly status and then removed the designation as corrective actions were implemented but when major bipod foam shedding occurred on sts 112 in october 2002 program management did not assign an in-flight anomaly instead it downgraded the problem to the lowest status of an action item before challenger the problematic solid rocket booster joint had been elevated to a criticality one item on nasa's critical items list which ranked shuttle components by failure consequences and noted why each was an acceptable risk the joint was later demoted to a criticality one r redundant and then in the month before challenger's launch was closed out of the problem reporting system Prior to both accidents, this demotion from high-risk item to low-risk item was very similar, but with some important differences. Damaging the orbiter's thermal protection system, especially its fragile tiles, was normalized even before shuttle launches began. It was expected due to forces at launch, orbit and re-entry. So normal was replacement of thermal protection system materials that NASA managers budgeted for tile cost and turnaround maintenance time from the start. It was a small and logical next step for the discovery of foam debris damage to the tiles to be viewed by NASA as part of an already existing maintenance problem, an assessment based on experience, not on a thorough hazard analysis foam debris anomalies came to be categorized by the reassuring term in family a formal classification indicating that new occurrences of an anomaly were within the engineering experience base in family was a strange term indeed for a violation of system requirements although in family was a designation introduced post challenger to separate problems by seriousness so that out of family problems got more attention by definition the problems that were shifted into the lesser in family category got less attention the board's investigation uncovered no paper trail showing escalating concern about the foam problem like the one that solid rocket booster engineers left prior to challenger so ingrained was the agency's belief that foam debris was not a threat to flight safety that in press briefings after the columbia accident the space shuttle program manager still discounted the foam as a probable cause saying that shuttle managers were comfortable with their previous risk assessments 
From the beginning, NASA's belief about both these problems was affected by the fact that engineers were evaluating them in a work environment where technical problems were normal. Although management treated the shuttle as operational, it was in reality an experimental vehicle. Many anomalies were expected on each mission. Against this backdrop, an anomaly was not in itself a warning sign of impending catastrophe. Another contributing factor was that both foam debris strikes and O-ring erosion events were examined separately, one at a time. Individual incidents were not read by engineers as strong signals of danger. What NASA engineers and managers saw were pieces of ill-structured problems. An incident of O-ring erosion or foam bipod debris would be followed by several launches where the machine behaved properly, so that signals of danger were followed by all-clear signals. In other words, NASA managers and engineers were receiving mixed signals. Some signals defined as weak at the time were, in retrospect, warnings of danger. Foam debris damaged tyre was assumed, erroneously, not to pose a danger to the wing. If a primary O-ring failed, the secondary was assumed, erroneously, to provide a backup. Finally, because foam debris strikes were occurring frequently, like O-ring erosion in the years before Challenger, foam anomalies became routine signals. A normal part of shuttle operations, not signals of danger. Other anomalies gave signals that were strong, like wiring malfunctions or the cracked balls in ball strut tie rod assemblies, which had a clear relationship to a loss of mission. On those occasions, NASA stood down from launch, sometimes for months, while the problems were corrected. In contrast, foam debris and eroding O-rings were defined as nagging issues of seemingly little consequence. Their significance became clear only in retrospect after lives had been lost. History became cause as the repeating pattern of anomalies was ratified as safe in flight readiness reviews. The official definitions of risk assigned to each anomaly in flight readiness reviews limited the actions taken and the resources spent on these problems. Two examples of the road not taken and the devastating implications for the future occurred close in time to both accidents. On the October 2002 launch of STS-112, a large piece of bipod ramp foam hit and damaged the external tank attachment ring on the solid rocket booster skirt, a strong signal of danger 10 years after the last known bipod ramp foam event. Prior to Challenger, there was a comparable surprise. After a January 1985 launch, for which the shuttle sat on the launch pad for three consecutive nights of unprecedented cold temperatures, engineers discovered, upon the orbiter's return, that hot gases had eroded the primary and reached the secondary O-ring, blackening the putty in between, an indication that the joint nearly failed. But accidents are not always preceded by a wake-up call. In 1985, engineers realised they needed data on the relationship between cold temperatures and O-ring erosion. However, the task of getting better temperature data stayed on the back burner because of the definition of risk. The primary erosion was within the experience base. The secondary O-ring, thought to be redundant, was not damaged and, significantly, there was a low probability that such cold Florida temperatures would recur. The scorched putty, initially a strong signal, was redefined after analysis as weak. On the eve of the Challenger launch, when cold temperature became a concern, engineers had no test data on the effect of cold temperatures on O-ring erosion. 
Before Columbia, engineers concluded that the damage from the STS-112 foam hit in October 2002 was not a threat to flight safety. The logic was that, yes, the foam piece was large and there was damage, but no serious consequence followed. Further, a hit this size, like cold temperature, was a low probability event. After analysis, the biggest foam hit to date was redefined as a weak signal. A similar self-defeating actions and inactions followed. Engineers were again dealing with the poor quality of tracking camera images of strikes during ascent. Yet NASA took no steps to improve imagery and took no immediate action to reduce the risk of bipod ram foam shedding and potential damage to the orbiter before Columbia. Furthermore, NASA performed no tests on what would happen if a wing-leading edge was struck by bipod foam, even though foam had repeatedly separated from the external tank. During the Challenger investigation, Rogers Commission member Dr. Richard Feynman famously compared launching shuttles with known problems to playing Russian roulette. But that characterization is only possible in hindsight. It is not how NASA personnel perceived the risks as they were being assessed, one launch at a time. Playing Russian roulette implies that the pistol holder realises that death might be imminent and still takes the risk. For both foam debris and o-ring erosion, fixes were in the works at the time of the accidents, but there was no rush to complete them because neither problem was defined as a showstopper. Each time an incident occurred, the flight readiness process declared it safe to continue flying. Taken one at a time, each decision seemed correct. The agency allocated attention and resources to these two problems accordingly. The consequences of living with both of these anomalies were, in its view, minor. Not all engineers agreed in the months immediately preceding Challenger, but the dominant view at NASA, the managerial view, was, as one manager put it, we were just eroding rubber o-rings, which was a low-cost problem. The financial consequences of foam debris also were relatively low. Replacing tiles extended the turnaround time between launches. In both cases, NASA was comfortable with its analyses. Prior to each accident, the agency saw no greater consequences on the horizon. 8.3. System Effects. The Impact of History and Politics on Risky Work. The series of engineering decisions that normalise technical deviations shows one way that history became cause in both accidents. But NASA's own history encouraged this pattern of flying with known flaws. 17 years separated the two accidents. NASA administrators, congresses and political administrations changed. However, NASA's political and budgetary situation remained the same in principle as it had been since the inception of the shuttle program. NASA remained a politicised and vulnerable agency, dependent on key political players who accepted NASA's ambitious proposals and then imposed strict budget limits. Post-challenger policy decisions made by the White House, Congress and NASA leadership resulted in the agency reproducing many of the failings identified by the Rogers Commission. Policy constraints affected the shuttle program's organisational culture, its structure and the structure of the safety system. The three combined to keep NASA on its slippery slope toward Challenger and Columbia. NASA culture allowed flying with flaws when problems were defined as normal and routine. 
the structure of NASA's shuttle program blocked the flow of critical information up the hierarchy, so definitions of risk continued unaltered. Finally, a perennially weakened safety system, unable to critically analyze and intervene, had no choice but to ratify the existing risk assessments on these two problems. The following comparison shows that these system effects persisted through time and affected engineering decisions in the years leading up to both accidents. The board found that dangerous aspects of NASA's 1986 culture, identified by the Rogers Commission, remained unchanged. The space shuttle program had been built on compromises hammered out by the White House and NASA headquarters. As a result, NASA was transformed from a research and development agency to more of a business, with schedules, production pressures, deadlines and cost efficiency goals elevated to the level of technical innovation and safety goals. The Rogers Commission dedicated an entire chapter of its report to production pressures. Moreover, the Rogers Commission, as well as the 1990 Augustine Committee and the 1999 Shuttle Independent Assessment Team, criticised NASA for treating the shuttle as if it were an operational vehicle. Launching on a tight schedule, which the agency had pursued as part of its initial bargain with the White House, was not the way to operate what was in fact an experimental vehicle. The board found that prior to Columbia, a budget-limited space shuttle program forced again and again to refashion itself into an efficiency model because of repeated government cutbacks was beset by these same ills. The harmful effects of schedule pressure identified in previous reports had returned. Prior to both accidents, NASA was scrambling to keep up. Not only were schedule pressures impacting the people who worked most closely with the technology, Technicians, mission operators, flight crews and vehicle processors, engineering decisions also were affected. For foam debris and o-ring erosion, the definition of risk established during the flight readiness process determined actions taken and not taken, but the schedule and shoestring budget were equally influential. NASA was cutting corners. Launches proceeded with incomplete engineering work on these floors. Challenger-era engineers were working on a permanent fix for the booster joints while launches continued. After the major foam bipod hit on STS-112, management made the deadline for corrective action on the foam problem after the next launch, STS-113, and then slipped it again until after the flight of STS-107. Delays for flow liner and ball strut tie rod assembly problems left no margin in the schedule between February 2003 and the management-imposed February 2004 launch date for the International Space Station Node 2. Available resources, including time out of the schedule for research and hardware modifications, went to the problems that were designated as serious, those most likely to bring down a shuttle. The NASA culture encouraged flying with flaws because the schedule could not be held up for routine problems that were not defined as a threat to mission safety. The question the board had to answer was why, since the foam debris anomalies went on for so long, had no one recognised the trend and intervened. The O-ring history prior to Challenger had followed the same pattern. This organisation pointed the board's attention toward the NASA organisation's structure and the structure of its safety system. Safety-oriented organisations often build in checks and balances to identify and monitor signals of potential danger. If these checks and balances were in place in the shuttle programme, they weren't working. 
Again, past policy decisions produce system effects with implications for both Challenger and Columbia. Prior to Challenger, shuttle program structure had hindered information flows, leading the Rogers Commission to conclude that critical information about technical problems was not conveyed effectively through the hierarchy. The space shuttle program had altered its structure by outsourcing to contractors, which added to communication problems. The Commission recommended many changes to remedy these problems, and NASA made many of them. However, the board found that those post-challenger changes were undone over time by management actions. NASA administrators, reacting to government pressures, transferred more functions and responsibilities to the private sector. The change was cost-efficient, but personnel cuts reduced oversight of contractors at the same time that the agency's dependence upon contractor engineering judgment increased. When high-risk technology is the product and lives are at stake, safety, oversight and communication flows are critical. The board found that the shuttle program's normal chain of command and matrix system did not perform a check and balance function on either foam or O-rings. The flight readiness review process might have reversed the disastrous trend of normalising O-ring erosion and foam debris hits, but it didn't. In fact, the Rogers Commission found that the flight readiness process only affirmed the pre-challenger engineering risk assessments. Equally troubling, the board found that the flight readiness process, which is built on consensus verified by signatures of all responsible parties, in effect renders no one accountable. Although the process was altered after Challenger, these changes did not erase the basic problems that were built into the structure of the flight readiness review. Managers at the top were dependent on engineers at the bottom for their engineering analysis and risk assessments. Information was lost as engineering risk analyses moved through the process. At succeeding stages, management awareness of anomalies and therefore risks was reduced either because of the need to be increasingly brief and concise as all the parts of the system came together or because of the need to produce consensus decisions at each level. The flight readiness process was designed to assess hardware and take corrective actions that would transform known problems into acceptable flight risks. And that is precisely what it did. The 1986 House Committee on Science and Technology concluded during its investigation into Challenger that flight readiness reviews had performed exactly as they were designed, but that they could not be expected to replace engineering analysis and therefore they cannot be expected to prevent a flight because of a design flaw that project management had already determined as an acceptable risk. Those words, true for the history of O-ring erosion, also hold true for the history of foam debris. The last line of defence against errors is usually a safety system, but the previous policy decisions by leaders described in Chapter 5 also impacted the safety structure and contributed to both accidents. Neither in the O-ring erosion nor the foam debris problems did NASA's safety system attempt to reverse the course of events. In 1986, the Rogers Commission called it the Silent Safety System. Pre-Challenger budget shortages resulted in safety personnel cutbacks. Without clout or independence, the safety personnel who remained were ineffective. In the case of Columbia, the board found the same problems were reproduced, and for an identical reason. When pressed for cost reduction, NASA attacked its own safety system. 
The faulty assumption that supported this strategy prior to Columbia was that a reduction in safety staff would not result in a reduction of safety, because contractors would assume greater safety responsibility. The effectiveness of those remaining staff safety engineers was blocked by their dependence on the very program they were charged to supervise. Also, the board found many safety units with unclear roles and responsibilities that left crucial gaps. Post-Challenger, NASA still had no systemic procedure for identifying and monitoring trends. The board was surprised at how long it took NASA to put together trend data in response to board requests for information. Problem reporting and tracking systems were still overlooked or underused, which undermined their very purpose. Multiple job titles disguised the true extent of safety personnel shortages. The board found cases in which the same person was occupying more than one safety position, and in one instance at least three positions, which compromised any possibility of safety organisation independence because the jobs were established with built-in conflicts of interest. End of chapter 8a